Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. This particular sentence, this phrase, this verse, um, is stuck in my mind. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Probably it's stuck because I feel the, the sharp edge of it a little bit because as long as I can remember, even as a young person, I guess my dream, my uh, desire, the spiritual superpower that I craved was wisdom. I heard the story of young Solomon, who when faced with all the many options, all the things he could have asked for, asked for wisdom and was granted wisdom and everything else. And I thought, okay, when the opportunity comes, ask for wisdom and you get it all. And so wisdom was the thing that I always uh, wanted to believe was true about myself. But like a lot of people who pride themselves on their intelligence, I think I've always secretly been afraid that it's not uh, as real as I'd like to believe, that uh, what seems wise to me is obviously foolish to everyone else. And so when I think about the things that mortify me, the things I fear the most, uh, being embarrassed, being shown to be foolish is one of those things. So when Paul speaks to us, not just about them, but about us, that in our wisdom, in our moments where we are most convinced, our intelligence, there we make ourselves fools. I find that a, a hard thing to get out of my mind. And maybe that's not such a bad thing. Maybe it's good to have an idea like that lodged in our minds at the beginning of Lent. And claiming to be wise, we've become fools. Maybe we need to humble ourselves in a season like this. The length of this season of Lent, of course, corresponds to Jesus' time spent in the wilderness. In Matthew 4, the Gospels give us an account of Jesus' sojourn, 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. This immediately precedes the beginning of his earthly ministry. He goes out into the wilderness for that period of time, and it's a conscious echo of an earlier sojourn in the wilderness from the Old Testament, the 40 years that the children of Israel spent in the wilderness. Of course, they spent that time in the wilderness because of sin, because of disobedience, because they did not have faith that God would keep his promises. They were forced to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. And it's no accident that when Jesus finds himself in the wilderness... This is where he experiences temptation. This is where sin comes to him and makes its offers to him. Satan proposes three things to Jesus in the wilderness. He says to him in Matthew 4, verse 3, If you are the Son of God, command the stones to become loaves of bread. Because in 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, Jesus understandably had grown hungry. Of course he had. Satan comes to him and says, there's an easy solution to this. If you are who you say you are, all you have to do is transform the stones into bread and you will no longer be hungry. But Jesus, quoting scripture, turns this suggestion aside. Satan's not done. 
He says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Having brought Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, Satan now says, cast yourself down. Because you trust in Scripture, Scripture says that God will let no harm come to you. The angels will descend and rescue you. There is nothing at stake in this gesture if you are who you say you are. So do it. Prove it. Not just to me, not just to yourself, but to everyone who witnesses it. Prove that you are who you say you are. But again, Jesus says no. He quotes Scripture to Satan, rebukes him, and refuses. So Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world, all the glory that those kingdoms possess, and he offers that to Jesus. He says, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And of course, Jesus resists this temptation as well. He doesn't do it. Jesus lives a life without sin. He doesn't give in in the wilderness. These questions are interesting. When theologians look at the questions that Satan poses here and elsewhere, the one that usually stands out is not uh, the series of, of proposals that are made in the wilderness. The question, above all questions, is the one that's posed in the garden in Genesis 3, when the serpent speaks with Eve. They have their conversation They discussed the word of God. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree? Did God actually say that you will die? Is that really what he said? Or in the King James, hath God said, it sounds more sinister and more serpentine. Hath God really said this? Is truly what God has said? The reason I think that the question asked in the garden is the one that's kind of paramount, is it seems almost to be the suggestion at the root of all temptation, the invitation to doubt what God has said, the invitation to not lend credence to it. But if you'd asked Dostoevsky, he would have pointed you to the questions in the wilderness. I'll apologize because I'm going to make yet another reference to Dostoevsky, Lori was giving me a hard time over this earlier, but, uh, but no, I don't apologize, actually. I retract my apology. I've been reading the Brothers Karamazov, and it applies to everything, and I want you to know about that. In a few weeks, I'll be done, and we'll move on to some other reference, and uh, you can stop hearing about it. But for now, I think this is, this is important. Um, Dostoevsky would have said that the questions that are asked in the wilderness are the ones that kind of summarize the, the proposition of sin. This is uh, the way he describes those questions. He says, from those questions alone, from the miracle of their statement, we can see that we have here uh, to do not with fleeting human intelligence, but with the absolute and eternal. For in those three questions, the whole subsequent history of mankind is, as it were, brought together into one whole and foretold, and in them are united all the unsolved historical contradictions of human nature. You'll find that quote in a chapter of the Brothers Karamazov called The Grand Inquisitor. That's the most famous chapter in the whole book. In fact, oftentimes it's printed as a standalone volume. It's an interesting chapter because it's devoted to a kind of thought experiment in which one of the characters in the story relates to 
his brother a poem that he's written, or at least that he's tried to write, but has apparently failed to write. So he's like, don't worry about the poetry. I'll just give you the plot of this poem that I was working on. And it's kind of a fanciful uh, parable, if you will, set in the age of the Spanish Inquisition, hence the title, The Grand Inquisitor. In the story, in uh, Spain, in Toledo, during the Inquisition, they've just had an auto de fe, an act of faith, which is a fancy term that they used for burning a bunch of people at the stake. So they've just burned a bunch of people at the stake, and then Jesus appears in town. Jesus is walking the streets, and the Grand Inquisitor has him arrested and brought to his chamber in order to interrogate him. And so the entire chapter is the Grand Inquisitor, Torquemada, interrogating Jesus. Only Jesus never speaks, so it ends up being not so much a dialogue, but a monologue. A monologue in which Torquemada confronts Jesus and lectures him on what happened in the wilderness. Basically says to Jesus, you got it all wrong. You were given three propositions, three things were asked of you. Satan uh, opened three doors. And in each case, you were tested and you failed. You chose the wrong thing. And because you chose the wrong thing, your church is where it is now. Because you did what you did in the wilderness, it is impossible for anyone to follow you, for anyone to have faith in you. Those three temptations, the Inquisitor says, were three powers that were being offered to Jesus. Powers that were necessary if he truly wanted to win over humanity. Dostoevsky writes, there are three powers, three powers alone, able to conquer and to hold captive forever the conscience of these impotent rebels for their happiness. Those forces are miracle, mystery, and authority. Miracle. Human beings are weak. They need miracles in order to sustain their faith, specifically the miracle of turning stone into bread. Jesus refuses on principle to to do this miraculous work, but the Inquisitor says, there you made a mistake. Because what you didn't understand about human beings is they won't believe in anything. They won't care about anything until they've been fed. And the person who feeds them will rule over them. If you want to bind men to you, if you want to uh, grab them and, and hold on to them, if you want them to confess their faith in you and you alone, make bread and feed them. Jesus refuses to do this miracle, and as a result, people do not follow him. Miracle is the first power. The second is mystery. Imagine if Jesus had done precisely what Satan suggested, finding himself in the pinnacle of the temple. Suppose he had thrown himself down. Suppose he had been snatched up by angels and had demonstrated to everyone who witnessed it his unkillability. That might have affected his following. Sure, he worked a few signs and wonders, that sort of thing. You heard rumors about stuff Jesus had done. But to see it in public like that, to realize that this man, thrown down from this great height, could not be killed, incomprehensible. How can we account for this? We can't. We can't explain it. And what we can't explain, we can only 
bow down to, we can only feel reverence to, because we are always in awe of what we do not understand. Jesus had wanted to bind weak human beings to him. He would have given them this kind of a sign, something that couldn't be refuted or questioned, something they couldn't understand. And finally, most importantly, the power of authority. Satan offers the crowns of the many kingdoms to Christ, and Christ refuses them. The Inquisitor says, you made a mistake there, because if you want people to follow you, you need to be powerful. If you want them to follow you blindly wherever you lead, you must wield authority over them. Because human beings in their weakness are subservient to power. They follow after success. They long to be like those who are greater than them. If you had shown your power to them and ruled over these kingdoms, they never would have abandoned you. But by refusing to perform these miracles, Jesus made it impossible for human beings in their weakness to remain faithful to him. The Grand Inquisitor says essentially, you made it too hard. You made it too hard so you couldn't have what you said you wanted. Your kingdom has failed. But don't worry, he says, because the Inquisition has fixed all this. We have not made the same mistakes. Where you failed, where you said no to these temptations, we've said yes. We feed the people, we give them mysteries they cannot comprehend, and we rule over their lives, and they love us for it. When you read the Grand Inquisitor chapter in context, it makes your skin crawl a little bit. It's kind of a horrifying thing to read, this lecture that uh, Torquemada gives to Jesus. In order to understand this, you have to realize that when the book was written in the 1800s, Torquemada, the, the Grand Inquisitor, he was invoked by people the way that we would invoke Hitler now. They didn't have Hitler because he hadn't come around yet. So when they wanted to accomplish the same thing rhetorically, they would talk about the Grand Inquisitor, this menacing figure who had burned so many people to death in the name of his ideology. Uh, he was a monster. He was someone to be frightened of. So to put these words, this philosophy, into his mouth and have him speak these words to Jesus is the strongest refutation of those ideas possible to Dostoevsky's way of thinking. And imagine if Hitler were sitting down with Jesus and lecturing him on what he'd done wrong. Similar kind of effect. Here's the strange thing, though. If you were to read what the critics have to say about the Grand Inquisitor, if you start reading an early 20th century literary criticism, and you read what D.H. Lawrence or Albert Camus had to say, you'll find something surprising, which is that as you get farther and farther away from the moment in time when the book was written, when you get deeper and deeper into the crises of the 20th century, you find otherwise intelligent people sympathizing more and more with what the Grand Inquisitor has to say. So that increasingly they say he has a point. People really are this way. If you want to rule over them, if you want to shape their lives, if you want to make them happy, this is the way you must treat them. 
kind of depressing when you think about it to realize that a character who is created so that the fact that he's saying the words refutes the words, actually, he ends up being persuasive. And more and more people unmoored from the original context find that what he's saying is actually right. Dostoevsky himself would have turned over in his grave. He understood the appeal of the logic, the appeal of the criticism of Jesus, because he had felt all of these things himself. He had been just as skeptical as the character he created in his book. He said, it is not like a child that I believe in Christ and confess him. My Hosanna has come forth from the crucible of doubt. But it's a testament to the way that sin, through its power, turns everything upside down. That a dialogue, a monologue, originally written so that it couldn't help but play as an abomination, more and more comes to be seen in exactly the opposite way. Everything is turned upside down. It's almost as if because of sin we will lend credence to anything, no matter how abominable, as long as it puts distance between us and God. As Paul says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. The reality of sin leads to the necessity of repentance. In the same way that the denial of sin makes repentance unintelligible, the more that we acknowledge our own sinfulness, the more that we see the importance of turning from sin, the more we deny our guilt, the less relevance repentance has. A good way to prepare our hearts for Easter, then, is to reflect on what made the sacrifice of Christ and the cross necessary. The denial of sin makes repentance unintelligible. It makes Easter into an abomination. If sin isn't real, if it's not important, if it's not something that will cost us everything, then why in the world would Jesus have endured what he endured on the cross? Why would such a travesty have ever been necessary? During this season of Lent, as we meditate on these things, maybe what we need to do is work backwards, reverse engineer. Knowing where we end at the cross, maybe we need to reflect on what it takes to get there. What has to be true in order for the cross to make sense? What has to be true about us in order for what Jesus did in that work of atonement to make any sense at all? What Jesus did on the cross was unavoidable. What does that say about the nature of our sin? I think it makes repentance not only necessary, but also delightful. It makes the need to turn from our sin actually a joy to think that we would be able to do such a thing. It makes resisting temptation something to celebrate. We're about to enter into a kind of wilderness, a metaphorical wilderness. Where we think about our weakness. We think about our sinfulness. If you do this well, and if you think hard about your condition, you won't emerge on the other side feeling self-confident and assured and spiritual. 
you will feel the opposite, and that's good. Because what it means is that when we come to the cross on resurrection morning, we will recognize that we have no reason to celebrate apart from Christ. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.